All right, good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and we are so glad that you are here. Uh, whether you're part of the church or you're visiting for the first time or you're worshiping with us online, we are super glad that we get to worship our Lord together. And today we continue with our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you were here last week, um, you may remember that we started in the first section of Matthew chapter 17 in which we talk about the transfiguration, when the transfiguration happened, um, which is super interesting because if you were here, you may remember or if you're familiar with the text, um, that is super interesting because Jesus goes up the mountain with three of his disciples and then light comes, comes from within Jesus and you see this beautiful display of glory and then Moses and Elijah appear and then God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, and then at one point in the midst of all these super hyper, super spiritual things, Everything disappears. And then the key text from that section is verse 8. It says, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And if you were here, you may remember that I said that part of the reason or the main reason why all of that stuff happened is because Matthew wanted us to see Jesus as the center of everything. Because the Bible points to him and talks about him. He is the fulfillment of the law, and that's why Moses disappeared. He is the ultimate prophet, and that's why Elijah disappeared. This is why the, the Father speaks about Jesus, and this is why one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to glorify or exalt or point to Jesus. And part of the reason why Matthew 17 does that is because of something that Hebrews chapter 1 says. 1 verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The simple explanation of that verse is this. That if you want to know and understand and believe in the God of the Bible, you must know, understand, and believe the Jesus of the Bible. That if you don't get Jesus, you don't get God. That Jesus is the only, is the point of the Bible and also the key to understand the Bible. That was pretty good, by the way. <laughs> Let me say it again. That Jesus is the point of the Bible and is the key to understand the Bible. If I put it in a different way, Jesus is the key, the, uh, is the point, uh, the one that is going to point us to understanding God and is the key to understanding God. So I believe that the section we have in front of us today is part two of what we started last week. So we're not changing the topic. It's still Jesus is at the center of everything, and that's why we're going we're to talk about three things today. That no one except Jesus is the great God. That no one except Jesus is worthy of our faith. And no one except Jesus is the heart of God. Now, I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, do you actually? Oh, actually, let's do this. Ask the question, is Jesus really the end of your means? Go ahead. Let's go with point number one. No one except Jesus is the great God. So I'm wrestling with this text. I found this text super interesting. And it took me a while to actually land and in a way that I could communicate it well. But this text is one of those texts, especially the first part and the last part, in which it says something, but it means something else. 
It is one of those things in which it tells you something, but it invites you to see beyond the things that you see. Uh, now, if, if you don't know what that means, uh, if you have ever been in a meaningful relationship, you should know what that is. That's when someone says something, and they mean that, but they also mean something else. How many of you guys ever been in a, <laughs> how many of you guys, <laughs> let's see, this is going to get complicated. How many, how many of you guys have ever been in a relationship like that? Good. How many of you guys are afraid of raising your hand? Let me explain it to you. I actually think that this is normal. It's usually it's a good technique to get, to, to get people to do what you want them to do without being offensive, right? So, for example, Heidi and I, I asked permission for this one, by the way. I didn't tell Heidi what I was going to say. I just said that I was going to say something. I, I have been married with Heidi for 27 years, right? And, and I think that it has been a wonderful, really a wonderful experience. I do have to humbly and respectfully say that part of the reason why this relationship has wor worked for 27 years is because of me. <laughs> I used the word humbly before, remember? I mean, don't hear me wrong. Heidi is an amazing lady. For those of you that know her, she's an amazing woman of the Lord, committed to the Lord, committed to the family, committed to the church. She's an amazing lady. But, hey, man, I got to take some credit for this because... Really, I worked really hard at making this relationship work. Part of the things that I did early on in our marriage is learning how to identify and exercise discernment so I know when Heidi is saying something or she's saying something and she means that, but also something else. For example, we have two dogs. They're famous dogs because I talk to them about them all the time, Hercules and Zeus. Uh, now, every now and then, Heidi and I are watching a movie, a night or something, a show, and then the dogs feel like going out to do number one, two, or three, whatever they do. <laughs> and then I hear they start barking by the, by the door because, you know, our, our dogs are well-trained. And they start barking, and then Heidi says something like this. I'll be right there, Hercules. I'll be right there, Zeus. Now... I know her enough that I know exactly what that means. So what do I do as a godly man? I pretend that I didn't hear anything. I, <laughs> watching the movie, right? But Heidi is smarter than I am. So she says the same thing with the same tone, gentleness, and love. But louder. I'll be right there, Hercules. Be right there, Zeus. Now, this is, this is ironic because one of our dogs only speaks English and the other one only speaks Spanish. So one of the dogs does, is not understanding what she's saying. <laughs> so then I finally, like a godly, full of the spirit, committed to our marriage man, I said, don't worry, baby, I'll do it. And then she says, no, 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 I'll do it. And inside of me, it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> See, in our relationship, this relationship has worked for 27 years because she knows how to handle me, and I know how to read her. <laughs> how about if I tell you that in Matthew 17, in this section, we see something very similar to that. In which Matthew is saying something. But he doesn't want you to just see that thing 
or hear that thing. He wants you to go beyond that so you see the true meaning of what he's saying. So as I said, there's two sections in this, uh, in this passage, two different interactions, one at the beginning and one at the end. Look at the one on, on the top. He says that there was a man that he was so desperate because his son is struggling. And in verse 14 says, and a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Verse 15. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. Now, the text says that this guy, this young man is demon possessed. That somehow is uh, the, the, an evil spirit is working in him. So look at what Jesus does in verse 18. Jesus rebuked the demon and he came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Now, the word rebuke there is super important because it doesn't say, the word rebuke doesn't mean, if you have ever seen a movie casting out demons, that word, the word rebuke does not mean that Jesus grabbed a bunch of tree branches and is smacking the kid with it. No, that's not what happens, right? You don't see although either Jesus changing his voice and saying, get out, to scare the demon out of the kid. No, that doesn't happen. He doesn't uh, put a, uh, a cross on the kid's forehead so the demon gets out. No, that's not what happens. That is what Jesus does. He speaks to the demon with authority. That's what the word rebuke means. He commands, get out. Not even, get out. It's, get out. And the demon submits to him. And the kid is healed automatically. On the spot. And someone may hear and read this text and say, oh, I know what that text is all about. It's about exorcism. That's how you cast out demons. Now, as a warning, please don't do that. There are two examples in the Bible in which someone came and spoke to a demon that way, and the demon jumped on him. And if that's not embarrassing enough, there's another time in which someone is trying to cast out demons, and the demon comes out, takes the clothes out, and the guy is running up uh, uh, butt naked. You don't want that one. So what is the point of this text? See, I told you that Matthew 17 is a, a whole unit. And if the idea is to put Jesus at the center of everything, what this story is telling us is not just about Jesus uh, casting out demons. is that Jesus is the ultimate authority and has the ultimate power that if he commands to Satan to get out, Satan submit to him. Just by the power of his word. The whole point of this, of this uh, narrative here is to elevate Jesus and to remind us that when Jesus speaks, even demons submit to him. You know what's crazy about this? I don't know if you ever thought about this, but even Satan needs permission from God to do the things he does. If you don't think that's true, all you have to do is read the book of Job, first chapter. And in the book of Job, you have this man that is doing everything right, that is a godly man, that loves the Lord, loves the family, prays, does, he does all these things. And Satan comes to God and asks for permission to make his life miserable. 
and God gives them permission. Listen, you have 20,000 questions about why they got allowed that, and I'll answer that later on. But for now, I just want you to see that Satan only submits to God. You don't have that power, just in case. We see another example of that in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is having a conversation with Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. That's a crazy text. Satan asked permission so he could make the disciples' life miserable. Permission. So just in case you missed it, the point of this narrative is extremely clear. No one except Jesus is the great God. No one except Jesus is the one that Satan submits to, darkness submits to. Only Jesus is powerful enough to destroy Satan and darkness. Only Jesus. That's the first part of the narrative. Then at the bottom, you get another narrative that has to do with taxes. Which is timely since we got to be doing all that stuff right now. So from verses 24 to 26, you see Jesus and the disciples... Uh, arriving to uh, Capernaum, and then a collector is coming to collect the tax, the temple tax. And the text says that it's required that each person pays two drachmas. A drachma is equivalent to maybe one day's salary in our time. And that tax is going to the temple. And someone asked Peter about Jesus, and they said, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? To which Peter replies, yes, he does. But look at what Jesus does in verse 27. He tells Peter, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them. And someone may read that and say, oh, I know what that text is all about. It's about paying taxes. And I would say, no, he's not. You got to pay taxes. But that's not the point. I want you to see why is it that I highlight the word, take the first fish you catch. He didn't say, go, go fishing. Take as many fish as you can. No, no, no. He says, go fishing, take the first fish. Don't miss it. First fish. And that once he catches the first fish, open its mouth, uh, mouth and he found a four drachma coin. You following? Four drachma coin. Meaning that in one coin, they could pay the tax for both of them. So what is the point of that narrative? That Jesus... Does not, only have, uh, does not only have power over Satan and darkness, that Jesus as the great God, the glory of God, the exact representation of God, is God, the sovereign God. So and so much that he has control over everything, not only Satan, not only the devil, but even nature, because even the fish must submit to him. Isn't that crazy? 
And he doesn't stop there because not only shows us Jesus as powerful against Satan and powerful against nature and sovereign over everything, but it also shows us Jesus as the God of providence, the God that uses everything to accomplish his purposes, even a stinky fish. And not only he does that, but he shows us Jesus as the one that knows it all, omniscient. How did he know that that one fish had the coin that he needed. This is not just about Jesus performing miracles. Matthew wants to magnify Jesus in such a way that we see that Jesus is the powerful God, the one that is powerful over darkness. He wants to magnify Jesus in a way that we see Jesus as powerful over nature. He is the sovereign, providential, and omniscient God. You know why that matters? Because he paints a picture of this God that not only cares for the afflicted, but has the power to heal the afflicted. He paints this picture of this God that has the power to command things and everything submits to him. He paints this picture of this Jesus that um, is in control of everything and sustains everything. He shows you a God in Jesus that knows, that knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. He shows you and paints the picture of a Jesus that literally has power, of, power over everything, including Satan. I think it's important that we ask ourselves a our question. Just with those two texts. Is Jesus really the kind of God that we ask to be our personal assistant? Is Jesus really the kind of God that we could put in our pocket, get him out when we need him, and put it back in when we don't? Is this really the kind of Jesus that we could say, well, I'm going to submit to you in these areas, but this one, don't mess around with that one. Is this really the kind of Jesus that we can say, I'm going to love you my way? Is this really the kind of Jesus that we could say, I like you my way? Can you see what Matthew is trying to do here? He's saying to us, either you take Jesus as the sovereign, powerful, omniscient, sovereign, providential God, or you don't get to take him at all. You don't get to choose the kind of Jesus you want. You take him as God or you don't take him at all. Now, if that is true then, then the second point must be true. That if that's the Jesus that Matthew talks about in Matthew 17, then he's also the Jesus that is worthy of our faith. Point number two. No one except Jesus worthy of our faith. Now, I want to show you here that in light of what we know about Jesus from the text, there are only three possible reactions. What I'm going to call three different types of faith. In light of what we know there, just with what we heard last week and we hear hearing today, in light of that, there's only three possible reactions, and I want to invite you to ask the question, which one of these three am I? Three different types of faith. The one that has faith in anything but Jesus, or the one that has little faith in Jesus, or the one that has faith like the mustard seed. Three different types of faith. Ask yourself the question, which one am I? 
Let me walk you through this. The first faith, the faith in anything but Jesus. So the father brings to Jesus his son that is demon-possessed. But right before Jesus performed this miracle, I want you to hear what Jesus says in verse 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Now, I got I to gotta be honest. I struggled with that verse quite a few during my, my preparation here because I had never heard Jesus say something like this. It doesn't seem like he's painting the picture of a Jesus that treats people like that. So a bunch of different questions came to mind. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking about the disciples? I don't think he's talking about the disciples, and I will show you why later on. Is he talking about other people that chose not to believe? Maybe. Is he talking about Satan and the demons that chose not to believe? Maybe. The reality is that the text doesn't make super clear who is Jesus talking about there. But you can see that Jesus is bothered by that. Why? Because there's a group of people or a group of beings there that have chosen not to believe and are perverse at the same time. You know what that means? Well, I'm believing it's easy to understand. But the word perverse literally can be translated as people that are trying to turn other people from believing. So he's talking about genera a generation of people that purposely have not chosen to believe in Jesus and are trying to convince other people not to believe in Jesus. And from that perspective, that makes sense. That's why Jesus is annoyed with this. Because there are people that not only don't want to believe, but are doing everything in their power so nobody else believes. Now, what I want you to see uh, here, though, is that just because these people don't believe in Jesus doesn't mean that they don't have faith. Let me make a provocative statement. Everyone lives by faith. If you are here and you're not a Christian, you're still living by faith. Is the object of your faith what is different? Either you believe in God or you're going to believe in something else. Either you trust God or you're going to trust something else. Actually, I think that this is the root of humanism. Humanism chooses not to believe in God, the God of the Bible, and yet they have so much faith in ourselves, in the human being. In what I think, what I want, what I feel, what I desire, what I think the truth is. And even if they choose not to have that faith in Jesus and choose to, they don't even have faith in themselves, we still could live by faith because we choose, uh, we choose to have the object, object of our faith and something created or signs or politics or career or money or gifts or anything at all. Everyone needs to have faith. Everyone has an object of faith. Is this you? Now, the second faith is where I think this is going to get super personal for us as a church. Because it's described as the people of little faith in Jesus. And this is where the disciples come in. See, at the beginning of the text, I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 16... Before this man goes to Jesus so Jesus can deliver his son, he had already taken his son to the disciples. Did you guys notice that? 
And for some reason, the disciples could not heal the kid. And that's why in verse 19, the disciples later on, later on asked Jesus this. Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, because you have so little faith. And you got to ask the question, what does that mean? Is it that the disciples didn't try hard enough? Is it that the disciples, disciples didn't have the quality or the quantity of faith that it was required for them to perform this miracle? Is it maybe that they didn't want it bad enough? What was their issue? Now, notice that Jesus says that they have little faith. Meaning that there's a certain level of faith there. So what's the problem? Listen up, church. You know what the problem was? They believed in Jesus. And they believed in themselves at the same time. They truly believe in Jesus. That he was sovereign. That he works providentially. That he's in control. That he's powerful. And he knows it all. They believe that. While at the same time, with the same intensity and the same uh, commitment, they believed in themselves. And if you are a good study uh, student of the Bible, you got to ask me the question, Hannibal, where did you get that from? I'm glad you asked. Because that's why the word could or couldn't in the text is so important. Did you know that that word in the original is the word dunamai. Doesn't that sound familiar or something? That sounds like the word dynamite we use in English. And you know what that word means in the New Testament? Power. They did not have the power. They went to a demon without the power. What was the power? So Matthew doesn't answer that question. But the Gospel of Mark does. And the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus, after this, they ask this question, Jesus says this, these demons only come out with prayer and fasting. You know why that's important? Because apparently, what these people, listen up, that these people that believe in Jesus, you know, that they go to church, that they read the Bible, that they memorize verses, that they give money, that they serve in children's ministries, that they come here on Wednesday night and it's part of a life group. That these people that believe in Jesus goes to cast out a demon not even praying. They didn't even pray. You know how arrogant a person must be to confront a demon Without even asking for power from on high? Listen up, church. It is possible to believe in Jesus. To believe that Jesus is God. To believe that he is powerful. To believe that he's sovereign. To believe that he works providentially. To believe that he is omniscient. And yet trust your own power with the same magnitude at the same time. And you know how we know that's true? Because of how we pray. Because of how we pray. 
You know, I'm convinced that for modern people, including myself, part of the reason why we struggle with this thing in which we believe in Jesus and we believe in ourselves so much is because we are part of a culture and a time that makes that easy to do and believe. See, you and I are, are, are part of a society in which medicine and science are successful things. We are part of the rational people that know how to find solutions. We are part of the, we are the product of the industrial revolution. We make things happen. We are part of the enlightenment. We are part of a society that is a sophisticated society. That we believe that we, can, we are capable of doing anything we set our minds to. We are part of a world that tells you that you have the power to change things. The crazy thing, though, is that sometimes we don't say it, but we think about it. We could go to God and say, God, give me some room. I got this. And we know that by the way we pray. Isn't that crazy? This is the little people. This is the little faith people. Listen to what this scholar uh, says. He says, little faith is not directed to Jesus. And little faith is not humble before, is, is not humble before Jesus. Little faith is, a, is big and self. It is do-it-yourself faith. It believes in itself. Just as the disciples believed in themselves, their own ability, power, and dynamite. That's what little faith looks like. Is that you? Thanks God he doesn't stop there. Thanks God he's going to show us what faith of mustard seed looks like. So in verse 20, Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as a small as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And the person that has little faith will look at this and says, you see, Hannibal, you got it wrong. The text says that if I have faith, I could move a mountain. And I mean, with all due respect, you don't know how to read your Bible. This is why the context in which this verse comes is so important. Matthew 17 is all about Jesus, never about you and I. Therefore, this verse is talking about the object of our faith. You know what type of faith moves a mountain? It's the faith that only trusts in Jesus. He is the object of our faith. He is God, not us. He is the one that has power over demons, not us. He is the one that when nature submits to him, not us. He is the one that is in control of everything, not you and not me. He is the one that works everything providentially, not you and not me. He is the one that knows it all, not you and not me. How about if I tell you that in this narrative... There is a good example of the mustard seed fade. In the person that you expected the least, the father. Look at verse 14. When they, when they, when they came to the crowd, a man 
approached Jesus and knelt before him. And he said in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. This is the faith we need. Did you notice that he kneeled? You know what that means? That's a symbol of, of submission. It's a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of him learning how to surrender himself. It's a symbol of adoration. Because he understands that the most natural reaction when you encounter this amazing, powerful, perfect God is to kneel before him. See, he knows that he doesn't deserve anything. That's why he's crying out for mercy. And he knows that he doesn't want what it takes to heal his son. See, this guy has real, genuine, powerful faith. He knows that there's only one person that can heal his son, and it's not him. It has to be Jesus. Listen to the scholar again. It is not necessary to have great faith. Even a small faith is enough. As long as it is faith in the great God. It is not the amount of faith that matters. It is the posture and object of faith. So if you're struggling and someone says, you're struggling because you don't have enough faith, you can ignore that person automatically. Because it's not about the quantity or the quality of your faith. It's about the object in whom do you believe. So let's do a quick application here because my run is timing out. And I'm going to go over my time just in case for those of you that care. <laughs> let's talk about suffering for a second. See, if you're going through a, diff a very difficult time, if you are the one that has faith in, in anything but Jesus, you will try to fix the problem. You will pay whatever you have to do. You will drink whatever you have to drink. You will do whatever you have to do. The problem is that there are things that you just can't fix. Like death. So what do you do then? Where do you go? You have nothing to survive. If you're the person of the little faith, amid suffering... Yeah, you can still believe in God's power, sovereignty, providence, and, and omniscience. But if you trust yourself way too much, you will, you will pray very little and do a lot. From that perspective, you will not be very different to the first person. You know what the problem is, which I find extremely dangerous with this? Is that if you are a person of little faith in Jesus, the line between little faith and no faith is very narrow. You would ask questions like, God, I believe that you're powerful, powerful, but if you're powerful, powerful, how come you don't fix my problem? See, God, if you're powerful, but if you don't fix my problem, then the problem is that you're not good. And I could believe that you're powerful, but if you're not good, then should I even trust that you are omniscient, that you know everything? And if you know everything, why would you allow me to go through this? And then you would say crazy things like this. I cannot think of a possible good reason why would you allow this into my life? I find that arrogant. Because you are saying that just because you cannot see that there's a good reason behind your suffering, that means that God is wrong. 
That's why the story of Job is so important. Uh, Job is so important. A man that was doing everything right. A holy man. A good father and a good husband and a good worker. A benevolent, a benevolent man. He helped the poor and the one in need. And in a blink of an eye, he lost a family, things, security, friends, health. He lost everything because God allowed Satan to mess around with him. You read the rest of the book and you don't find one explanation. God never tells these godly men why he said that he's going through that suffering. Not once God tells them why. He confronts them with the reality of who God is. And the job that we see at the end of the book after uh, 42 chapters, very different to the job we saw at the beginning. This is how the book almost ends. I know, Job is speaking to God, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, uh, things far too wonderful for me. You know what that is? When we are arrogant and we're trying to figure out and, and, and impose things on God, and then God points this picture, paints this picture of his greatness and beauty and power, and the only thing that you got to say is, you are God and I'm not. I have no idea what the heck I was talking about. Notice that I used the word heck. <laughs> it is not necessary to have great faith. All you need is a small faith as long as it's a faith in a great God. Now, that is so easy to say, so hard to believe. So easy for me to preach this sermon. So hard to put it into practice. How many of you guys agree with that? I'm glad. We're in good company, you know, because that's why we have point three. The only way we can trust and learn how to grow in this thing is by point three, when we understand that no one else but Jesus is the heart of God. So it's interesting because we have right in the middle of this, these verses, verses 22 and 23. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life. How about if I tell you that just in those two verses you get the whole explanation of why is it that we should trust Jesus and how we learn to trust Jesus more and more. Just with these two verses. Just by looking at the cross. Ready? I'm going to read this part. If the question is, is God powerful? Is God powerful even in the midst of my suffering? And I would say, of course, yes. Of course, he's powerful. You know how I know? Because he died and resurrected again. What makes you think that he cannot turn ashes into joy? What makes you think that he's not going to use your suffering for his glory and your good? If the question is, is God sovereign? Does God actually have control over everything, even if I don't understand what's happening? And I would say, of course he's sovereign. Wasn't by the will of God that Jesus was delivered and taken to the cross to fulfill what he had already said years before. So the question for you and I is this. If God was in control of everything that happened before the cross... And Jesus went to the cross, and God was in control of his resurrection. What makes you think that he's not in control of everything else in your life? Does, is God providential? Of course he is. 
He used your sin. He used their sin. He used the Roman sin. He used the cross to accomplish his purpose. He used every single little thing to accomplish his purpose. What makes you think that he is not going to use everything, even in the midst of your suffering, to accomplish his purposes? Is God omniscient? Of course he is. God knows everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen. The cross is the ultimate evidence of that. God the Father knew that Jesus was going to go to the cross. God the Father knew how much his son would have to suffer. God the Father knew how much he was going to be, he was going to be humiliated and rejected. God the Father knew that at the cross he would go through something similar to the father in the story. His son would have to die. Suffer. The difference though is the guy in the story got redeemed. But not Jesus. But not only God the Father knew that, but Jesus knew that. He knew that he would have to be exposed to the evil of this world. He knew that he would have to uh, be exposed to the evil of the cross. He would know that at the cross he would be completely alone, completely abandoned, crying out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? And he got nothing. Why? So you know, even in the midst of suffering, his heart, that he is good and he is for you. Why would you ever doubt and worship anything else but Jesus? Why would we do that? Only in him. Only in him we are fully secure, fully satisfied, fully content, fully loved. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I know that many times, even as believers, we go through this season of questions and doubts and not being able to lower, uh, put two and two together, Lord, and having a hard, a hard time trusting that you are powerful over Satan and over nature, that you are sovereign, that you have control over everything, that you work providentially, that everything serves your purposes, Lord, and even that you know everything. That as believers, we can have certainty that even the things you allowed would always will be for your glory and our good. My prayer, Lord, is that you take us to the cross and we can see there the ultimate evidence that everything we just said is true. And that in addition to that, you do bring or permit everything because you are good. And you love us. Can you please, God, 
paint a greater, bigger, more beautiful picture of Jesus. So we come to the conclusion that no one except Jesus is the great, perfect, and satisfying God. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...